Welcome to the film that blew my mind. I'm Tabitha Jackson. And I'm John Cooper, here with another episode of our weekly podcast, All About the Heart and Soul of Cinema. Today's guest is an incredibly prolific artist, a deeply thoughtful storyteller, and a gentleman. Acclaimed actor, writer, producer, and director, show off. His credits span screen, stage, television, the written word, and burlesque. First of all, his long-standing collaboration with Richard Linkletter has brought no fewer than eight films, included these beloved titles, Before Sunrise, Before Sunset, Before Midnight, that trio, and of course, Boyhood, which actually is one of my um, films that blew my mind. I love it. And all those titles begin with a B. I don't know if we should read anything in, into that. Um, other credits include, but are not limited to... Films like Dead Poet Society, Reality Bites, Gattaca, Training Day, The Good Lord Bird, Wildcat, The Last Movie Stars, which is, we were just talking to Ethan about how much we love this documentary series about Paul Newman and Joanne Wood and so much more. And also today's guest gave a beautiful performance in the final season of Reservation Dogs, which was the hit show created by one of our past guests, Sterling Harjo. Yes, and if you haven't guessed it yet, you haven't been listening. Totally. So today we are delighted to welcome the very busy and extremely lovely Ethan Hawke. Hello, Mr. Hawke. Well, hello. That was a heck of an introduction. <laughs> I, I, I want you guys to be my alarm clocks when I wake up in the morning. I want to hear that. We like, could do that. We could do that. Yeah. Plus someone with your massive talents. It would be a privilege. Only if you're on the West Coast, because I'm not getting up that early. Well, I can but, record it. Oh, that's, oh, that's, that's yeah. to modern, modern techniques. Thank you so much for doing this. It's my pleasure. I'm excited to be here. So the biggest question on everybody's minds today yes. is... What, Mr. Ethan Hawke, is the film that blew your mind? Well, it has to be Warren Beatty's masterpiece, Reds. I love this movie so much. And, you know, I'll tell you when it blew my mind. I cannot say that I saw it on opening day at the Ziegfeld <laughs> or something like that, because I was only 11 years old when it came out. I will say that I remember my mom coming home from seeing the movie and talking about it nonstop. But I didn't care what my mom said back then. <laughs> but I had just finished shooting Dead Poet Society, and I'd gotten this little part in a movie and was living in LA. I was 18 years old. I was old enough to be living on my own in a you know furnished apartment off Barham Boulevard in LA. I know One those room, apartments. Yeah, the Oakwood apartments. And I'd, I'd spent my per diem on three Tyco racetracks. <laughs> and I combined them and I had, that was my idea of like Bola. being extravagance. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I had these Tyco racetracks set up and I would race cars in my room and I had a VCR and I, I treated myself one night and I rented Reds and I was by myself and I was 18 and I saw this movie and it was just everything I ever wanted to do with my life. There's something about how romantic it is, the idea of people struggling with how to be of service and ideology, the epic scale of, you know, the old-fashioned David Lean kind of scale of it where it's this romance set against the tragic sweep of history. 
and this is in Ronald Reagan's America, right? He right. was yeah. And so all I'd ever heard my entire life was nasty things about communists. And to see a movie that really explores what's positive about communism and why good people got involved in it. And there was something so smart about the movie, seeing George Plimpton as a literary mm-hmm. person, Jerzy Kaczynski as this Russian radical, um, Nicholson's performance, of course. I really think it's the high watermark of Warren Beatty's uh, illustrious career. He's had an amazing career and done some really brilliant movies, but I feel like this is what he was born to do, and he did it. I don't know anybody else that would make this movie, that could make it. The fact that it has so-called, it's about ideology, and it's really unpretentious. His character is so sometimes smart, sometimes so boyish, sometimes stupid, sometimes silly. And to watch the evolution of Diane Keaton's character, who in a lot of ways is the movie. She's such a great comedian. And then to see her be a dramatic actress on this level, it just, to put it simply, it blew my mind. Oh, what an excellent turn of phrase. Cooper, for those unlucky enough not to have seen this film. Do you want to give a little synopsis and then maybe we should play the trailer to to get us in the mood? Yes. This is a romantic epic about political activist Jack Reed and journalist Louise Bryant. Reds is a historical drama set amidst the 1917 Russian Revolution and the beginning of the American Socialist Movement. Warren Beatty directs, co-wrote, and co-stars along Diane Keaton in a film which won the Oscar for Best Director in 1982. That's the synopsis we have. Do you want to look at the trailer really fast? Yeah. This is a good trailer, too. If you were mine, I wouldn't share you with anybody or anything. There's something I have to tell you. You don't have to tell me anything. No. No. You want to get married? Does this mean that we have to cheat, or is this free and independent marriage? You're a lying Irish whore from Portland, and you used me to get Jack Reed to marry you. Who? What do you mean, who? Who was it? Who was what? Jack dreams that he can hustle the American working man, whose one dream is to be rich enough not to have to work, into a revolution led by his party. Is the Socialist Party prepared to take a position on the draft or not? The officer, these men have the legal right to assemble. What the hell are you doing? Me? I write. You write? Huh? Uh-uh. You wrong. I'd rather be with a fighter who wants to change the world than a critic who wants to mourn it. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Come on! You're a lying Irish whore from Portland, Oregon, and you use me to get Jack Reed to marry you. <laughs> I am rude. Rude. Very rude. So, Ethan... As this 18-year-old sitting among your Tycho tracks renting this film, <laughs> what tell us more about what about it struck you so hard. Well, I think I should say that I then went on, when I started a theater company a, a few years later, when we first started it, I got a print of the movie and screened it for everybody. When my best friend got married and I was his best man and had to set up a party. I screened Reds. Um, <laughs> when Richard Linkletter and I were about to start, I guess, our second or third movie together, we set up a screening of Reds. 
I have seen this movie now so many times and I've seen it projected. I saw it at St. Mark's at a revival house. And I watched it again last night just to make sure, you know, did I feel the same way I did originally? And it really is like, you know, when you read a great novel, it speaks to you at the place you're at. And when I first watched it, I was imagining what being a grown-up was going to be like, what falling in love was going to be like. How do you place your political beliefs into your actions as a human being and your behavior? There's something really fun about watching idealists and watching where their ideals rub up against the friction of daily life Mm -hmm. and that it's very hard to live these ideals and to watch them struggle with it. I think it was the kind of relationship I always dreamed of being in. And I've visited it all these different times. I even saw the 25th anniversary screening at Lincoln Center. They did something and Beatty came and talked about it. I've revisited this movie periodically throughout my life and it it continually teaches me things. A lot has been said about Warren Beatty, but one of the things about him that is really remarkable is what a gifted actor he is. Mm. There's so many subtle moments in this movie. Like when I watched it last night, I was hypnotized. Most period movies feel so nostalgic. They feel seeped in formaldehyde. The people don't seem alive. And and I was noticing almost every scene, somebody spills something, somebody trips, somebody's got a stupid hat on. The stove catches on fire. The stove catches on fire. The puppy's kissing somebody's face. So there, there's an improvisational feel to the dialogue. You, you feel like you're capturing moments you're not meant to be seeing. And yet the script is so well built. You know, Taxi's Waiting Jack. There's all these little what do you call them, like cherries in the top that the script delicately guides you through. And yes, it is long. Three and a half hours long, listeners. There's a time and a place, like I always feel this way about different genres of movies. Like it's Saturday night, you're having a sleepover with all your friends. It's time for a midnight scary movie and you want to play a good one. And sometimes there's a time in your life when you want to sit down and be spoken to like an adult Mm. about romance and politics Mm. and these things that really guide most of our adult lives. And and it has to be three and a half hours long. You can't make that movie. I was watching it last night thinking, all right, in today's context, like, all right, so how do you get 45 minutes out of this movie, (laughs) right? And you just can't. Right. You you would lose the beauty of it. It's very, very difficult to end a movie well. Mm. And I'll tell you another funny personal thing. We totally ripped off Reds in Reality Bites. Um, Yeah, yeah, my character in Reality Bites comes back from his like father's funeral or whatever. And we just, Winona and I just hug at the end. And I can't remember if it's her or me, but one of us says, don't leave me. And um, (laughs) it's just, I remember Helen Childress who wrote that script. We were both giant Reds geeks. And I don't know. It was our little yes. Gen, Gen X toss back to the generation before us. I want to go back to something you said. I mean, you talked about the, these two great themes of romance and politics. And you you said before, you know, maybe it's the relationship you at 18, the relationship you maybe wanted to have. I was struck by this incredible relationship at the heart of this movie 
partly because of being such a huge fan of The Last Movie Stars that you directed the documentary series about Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward. Love and romance on this grand scale against a backdrop, whether it's of the development of Hollywood and the star system and all that, or whether it's against the unfolding revolution in Russia in this one. It feels like there's something in you that wanted to explore or was drawn to that theme. And I wonder why that might be, if indeed it's true. I worked with this uh, Vladimir Idzak. Uh, he was Kislovsky's DP and he shot the film Gattaca. And he was a really brilliant man, a really brilliant photographer. And I remember him saying to me that when the camera has a male and a female on screen and the characters are three-dimensional, when both the male and female are three-dimensional in a frame, that is the definition of cinema to him. That you have the whole world when you have that. And I think I admired Louise Bryant, the feminist. I admired a man who was in love passionately with a feminist. I thought that was really sexy. I had never seen a movie where a woman, you know, betrays, cheats her lover and he forgives her and the relationship deepens from the experience. Mm. I'd seen so many macho movies where the film itself wasn't sympathetic to why that might've happened. I've seen movies where men cheat and want to be forgiven, but I'd never seen the inverse. And I thought it makes their relationship really substantive. It makes their love really substantive. Um, I think you're right that the reason why I did that documentary, The Last Movie Stars, is I am a romantic. You know, the Before Trilogy, which you guys cited, they're deeply romantic films. And it's a belief in the, not the corny sense of the word love, but the kind of enduring why are we here? Why was I born? Why do I have to die? What am I living for? And that dynamic of love, of romance, however you define it, in this, that searching, I just, you know, so many people in the world fall in love and yet there's still, it somehow often seems cheap on screen. And I, I just, I guess that's why I picked this movie. That's such a beautiful answer. And, um, it's difficult to know whether we can ever achieve the kind of things that we see on screen when it's not cheesy. But I also wonder, not to be too personal, but I'm a child of divorce and I think you are too. Mm -hmm. You know, what did we learn? What did you learn from the romantic relationships that were around you in your formative years? And has that got anything to do with the the pull of romance in cinema for you? Well, you might daydream and armchair psychologists might say that a lot of children of divorce become romantics in this dream of getting their parents back together, Mm. you you know, in this kind of longing for love to be permanent. And if it's not permanent, what does that tell me about the universe and the energy that created me? If those people no longer love each other, Mm. what does that mean about me? And I think a lot of children you know, the cliche thing is that they blame themselves. But I think a lot of us do somewhere deep in our subconscious wonder, what was the love that made me? And was it a valuable love? 
Mm. And, and then you get into the definition. I mean, you have to explore those thoughts kind of deeply. And we explored that in boyhood too, you know, because we were kind of looking at divorce from the child's point of view, but I yes. was playing the parent, which was really kind of fun for me in a lot of ways. I was playing a version of my dad in that movie, you, right. you know, and so exploring for me, the actor, not, I'm not saying the movie, but for me, the actor was exploring what that was like for him. And I bet you anything I was drawn to romances because I wanted to believe. Right, right. Yeah. I mean, this, this film is so well balanced, too, between the politics and their love scenes. Wow. But it's, the politics of it are also interesting, not least in just the very fact that Warren Beatty managed to convince Paramount Studios and Gulf Western behind it to give him a bunch of money to make a film about, you know, anti-capitalism Bolsheviks. and those, right. those ideals and Bolsheviks. And, and it's not in a... The politics don't come across as either uh, from a U.S. perspective as kind of preachy, though misguided, and they realize the error of their ways. It's much more nuanced than that. I felt that I learned a little bit about idealism and what they had seen, i.e. the transformation of a country and the people rising to power and taking control of the government in 1917. It's like, yeah, of course you would think all kinds of things are possible that we just don't think anymore. I don't know how much, or I should only speak for myself, how much I believe is changeable, how much is fixed, and we just have to put up with it. I asked myself that same question last night. Yeah. I thought it was really interesting. Do I believe revolution of human thought is really possible anymore? Mm. Or or like I did when I was younger. But to your point, what makes it a remarkable movie is it both – never tries to proselytize to you or turn you into a socialist, and it never makes fun of them. Right. It, it, it walks this razor's edge where sometimes he looks silly, but really you see the humanness of people wanting to believe in something, you yeah. know, and that it, he almost could have been on any side of the political spectrum because the movie was about them. Yes. And, right. and I found that really smart. I can't imagine another filmmaker making it where they didn't get seduced into convincing the audience of why socialism is great or convincing the audience why socialism is bad. They they really made it extremely human. It has a lot of beautiful elements and has a lot of problems. Yeah. The movie holds all that nuance. And it wasn't just a backdrop for a love affair story either. They took it seriously. But that line, which is great, there's points at which they both speak so fast and the ideas are so dense. It's like, am I supposed to be trying to take this in and understand it? Or is it just wallpaper? I mean, one of my favorite films is um, Brief Encounter. Mm-hmm. You know, David Lean directed it. And there's a moment where, where Trevor Howard is just talking about eye disease in Africa. And she is totally, Celia Johnson is totally zoned out. And you know you're not really supposed to be listening to what he's saying. This was different because the ideas are important in there, but they're also expressed as behavior. This is a couple talking about things they're passionate about. And so you're reading the behavior of love and intimacy, not necessarily trying to understand the tenets of socialism. Yeah, you just, you're really watching her development into an adult, you know, where when it starts, she's kind of got some ideas about feminism and trying to express herself. And then she 
becomes a very serious person. The ideology, the things that she's saying are, yes, interesting, but what's really interesting is her conviction and the intelligence with which she begins to speak about them. And so you watch her growth and you're watching how the love affair is having positive manifestations on both of them. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. even she's the one who understands he's kind of betraying himself as a writer as he gets too involved in political activism. Right. And and that ends up leading to his death. And she's, she's the person who sees that. There's that great close-up of her when he starts getting carried away and dividing the party and he's going to go to Russia and he gets not, you just watch this close-up of her as she goes, no, this is not right. This is right. not what you're, this is not what you're good at. And I, it's just it's just deep, for lack of a better. There's, it's multi-layered. She believes yeah. in what he's saying, but wants him to write about it, not do it. And it's just very interesting. Well, she wants him to be good at that. He wants to be good at other things too, but he's not. He's kind of limited in who he is in the world. Like, stick with what your contributions are. What about those? I call the interstitials, but the the real people who are talking about the, the witnesses. witnesses, the witnesses. Yeah. That's kind of a fascinating thing to just shove into this movie. It's just like, all it's right, utterly brilliant. <laughs> yeah. And when you realize that they use for people who haven't seen the movie, they use these interviews with people in their eighties and nineties who knew them or were near the scene as kind of a Greek chorus. Mm-hmm. I mean, and they're telling you things that run parallel to the story and some things that are the opposite. You know, they're, you're seeing that history confuses what the story is. Were they lovers? I don't know if they were lovers. Oh, they were a couple. You know, like, remember that it's, yeah. you, you, you get opposing narratives, which is brilliant. Henry Miller is my favorite, but they also have Rebecca West in there. I mean, it's incredible. <laughs> it really is stunning. And I, you know, I'm a big uh, nonfiction documentary lover and I don't think I've seen... We've seen this idea now a number of times in different films, but I don't think I've ever seen it as well executed as this because, as you say, you know, the film begins with these witnesses and it does, it did a couple of things for me. One was, as you just alluded to, the film is telling you to be wary of memory and one narrative and that memory is fallible Insights are subjective and sometimes opposing. So we're about to embark on a great story. It's almost saying, but this is just our recollection of it. This is just our interpretation of it, which it I It sets it loved. up beautifully. It's not saying this is the fact. That's There's a right. lot of different stories. And we, the filmmakers, have heard a lot of different stories. And now we're making a movie. Yes. And it lifts it beautifully. It's like the opposite of every movie now seems to start with, this is based on a true story, or this is almost based on a true story. It's like- This starts and says, I'm not sure there is such a thing as a true story. Yes. But these, here's a version of something that might have happened. That's right. That's right. And then the other thing it did for me is when they talk about Jack and Louise, they talk about them in such a way, it's both edited, and these were interviews that Beatty himself did, I think, over a course mm-hmm. of, of years as he was researching it, but they're edited in such a way that by the time you get to the start of the movie, you are desperate to meet them. It's desperate. so It's so brilliant. And I thought it was just going to happen at the beginning, and then no, it's interwoven so... It's such genius, the timing right down of to when the, the end chorus credits. comes in. Oh, Things yes. go and come back again. <laughs> yeah. So beautiful. 
They really also is. take something that they almost make. There was this bubble in all these other people's lives. It was like something they heard about for a while, a rumor in the neighborhood. But then you see what was really happening, and it is so big and dramatic. There's trains and tundra and and, gun and hunger and, and gunfights and explosions. Yeah. Ships. And that, and that how you uh, that how these amazing big parts of our history, if they're not recorded well, they just turn into little blips in someone else's life. And and how we all exist inside a inside a community that there's all these little microcosms inside a larger context. And the thing that I think makes the movie so special to me too is that they're not that remarkable. It's not like we're watching Napoleon or some somebody or you know <laughs> right. Cleopatra or something. He's a guy who wrote one pretty good book. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they're remarkable human beings worthy of our attention and our time and their story is amazing, but the movie doesn't ever hyperbolize them to some deified, mm-hmm. you know. They're remarkable to each other. Yes. That's that's what it is. Is they've created their own importance of each other that is beautiful and that's a love story i mean that's what happens in a love story cooper that's so true and also it just reminds me of something uh, our previous guest had ira Sachs, when he was talking about cinema and he said that a friend miguel arteta had said to him that poetry is time and place and that's what cinema was to him as well i think that what was remarkable about these two people was where they were and at what moment. So they were there in 1917 during the revolution. They put they were in Greenwich Village at its height. at its height, its creative uh-huh. height. They put themselves in places. And witness was such a good idea for you know labeling the interviewees. They were witnesses mm-hmm. to something extraordinary. You bring up an interesting point is why Eugene O'Neill is such an interesting presence (laughs) to have in the movie. He's the most famous person in the movie. Um, And yet he's he's a background character. But they just happen to be in Provincetown when Eugene O'Neill is rehearsing a new play. (laughs) But he's not, quote unquote, Eugene O'Neill. He's just a really interesting guy who's writing some plays and they're acting in them and they're not very good. And it roots it in its time and place in a way that is so specific and wonderful. Yeah. But it also reminded me, I was thinking about you, Ethan, when I was watching it, because you have spoken, I think it was in a TED Talk, you spoke about the power of creativity and it's not about being, and forgive me, I'm going to brutalize it, but it's not about whether you're good at something or not. It's just Finding the thing you love and doing it is an expression of your true self. So I like the fact that the film showed Jack Reed as not a very good poet, not a very good writer. The chorus comes in and said, yeah, he was, <laughs> there were all these people saying, yeah, he wasn't great at that. But his journalism, that was what he loved and was brilliant at. I love the fact that there was so much creating going on. It was art and life and history and journalism. Oh, it's fun. It's It's fun just to watch them edit each other's stories, you know, (laughs) and watch them work out, cut the, that's not a good lead sentence. Oh, that, but you know, move that. It's something very romantic about people collaborating on that level. And just like they're always working, you know, they were always, they have their love life and everything, but they're always working. They're always pushing themselves 
And one thing we're not talking about is Storaro. I mean, oh my God. Yeah. The movie is, it's just so beautiful to look at. And when you realize there was times in my life I knew more about the physical production of the movie because I studied it and things, but I know they shot forever. And I know, yeah. like, I, I think I read somewhere that Warren Beatty burned more film than Coppola did on Apocalypse oh, Now. Yes, that's right. But Storaro shot both these movies. I mean, right. they're they're right around the same three-year window. And the level of contribution that Storaro is making, there are close-ups in this movie that I would hang on my wall. They're so beautiful. I The, the one where it's... Um, it's Jack Nicholson as Eugene O'Neill and Diane Keaton, of course, as Louise Bryant. And they're sitting. The light is, she's wearing a hat. And so half her face is in shadow and you can't see her eyes. And it just is like the most beautiful portrait. And then Eugene O'Neill sitting next to him, part of his face is in shadow. His nose and chin is highlighted. It's just stunning. It's exquisite. And totally, tonally goes with what is happening, the feeling, the intangible, but almost made tangible by Storaro. God, it's just stunning. And then bloody Stephen Sondheim did the music as well. I know. (laughs) But you know, what often happens a lot, for me anyway, as an actor, I see movies that are really beautiful. And it hurts the acting sometimes. Mm. It's like, I, Mm. I call them coffee table movies. Because you kind of flip through them like a cop, like, and all you you walk out and talk about how beautiful the movie was. And great movies, I think, are when the director becomes invisible, the actor becomes their character. When you finish this movie, you are thinking about Jack Reed and Louise Bryant and Eugene O'Neill and the, all these characters and the ideas, all the the different fingers of the film production, costume, photography, writing, acting, they're seamless. And the, what's so strange, you, you'll see some unbelievable composition of a shot, but the acting is so loose. They're not posing. Right. In a lot, of, a lot of contemporary movies, yeah, the DP is amazing and the shot's amazing, but you see the actors like trying to stay in that perfect light or trying to, I, I just see how it's all functioning. Whereas in this movie, it's a gorgeous shot and Warren Beatty spills coffee all over his pants. And, <laughs> and right. so it's, it's so alive. And it's not stagnated by the beauty of it. Just on that point, it's really interesting because he burnt a lot of film, but he burnt a lot of film partly because he was doing like a hundred takes of a scene, the scene with Gene Hackman saying that she was fired by the newspaper guy, uh, by the literary guy. They did it a hundred times. It's, and Margaret stated, said, uh, who knows, this is on the IMDb trivia, that's my source, <laughs> that um, Maureen Stapleton... When she'd got to the 80th take and he asked for another one, she said, have you lost your fucking mind? And the whole crew applauded. <laughs> so I, how it can have that sense of aliveness and looseness when they're doing that is amazing to me. I think my armchair actor, director brain says, that's the problem with directing yourself. I think one of the downsides is you really do lose objectivity and you're inside and outside, which is very difficult. Yes, people have done it extremely well. I'm not saying it can't be done, but I think it does make people insane. (laughs) Um, It's not good for your psychological health. And um, I've often wondered if 
Beatty ever truly recovered from making this movie. Hmm. You know, like it seemed to take such a huge toll on him psychologically. You know, but he did some great work after that. I'm not saying that, but you know, he's a first ballot Hall of Famer, one of the all-time greats. But he, for a guy whose career was as long as his, he's done shockingly little work. I mean, (laughs) you know, I mean, I know he would probably say he just puts his whole self into develop, like he, you know, he worked on one movie for five, six, seven, eight, nine years, worked on Bugsy forever. He worked on, you know, these things were very important to him. But I do think this movie took a heavy toll. I read some article by the editor of it. She was saying that, if he wasn't the director of the movie, his performance would be a lot better in the movie because he didn't pick the best takes of himself. Oh, she, uh. she thought she thought he was a terrible at discerning what was his best moments. And <laughs> I've since thought about her saying that and think, I bet she's wrong. I think one of the things that's really nice about the movie is it doesn't feel in service of Warren Beatty. It feels in service of these characters. Hmm. And... He's a part of the ensemble, which is very, you know, a lot of people who direct themselves well, Clint Eastwood, Woody Allen, you know, Spike Lee, their character is the movie, you know? And when your character's arc is the film's arc, I think it's easier to do, you know, Clint Eastwood and Unforgiven or Pale Rider Mm -hmm. or something like that. But what Warren's doing is he's a part of that ensemble and he's the director. It really breaks my brain that he did it so well. But I bet it broke his brain, too. (laughs) There are two things that I think about him. One, him having probably to go into these meetings all the time to defend what he's doing, to get more money, to stay on track. You know, you never see that as part of these. And how does somebody be a performer in the movie and deal with all that at the same time must have been mind-boggling. Of course, you know, when they see him, it's like I could see in an office, like him walking in, and here he comes, everybody's heads down, like like he's going to, because he's an amazing salesman. His, he shows that in the movie. He's, he's really good at that. He's a natural. But the other thing we were, you were talking about, what you take away from the movie, and I took away is looking at my life, is it remarkable? Like that whole idea of just trying to be remarkable and what does that feel like and not being afraid of it as well. That's a scary question to ask yourself. <laughs> it is. You know, because there's almost no good answer because if you're trying to be remarkable, you're probably being inauthentic. You know, one doesn't want to aspire to be remarkable. And yet we all want to be remarkable. Like it's, you know, we don't want to live a life of quiet desperation. Like they said, we want to be our truest self. But, you know, we're all, I think, naturally suspicious when somebody walks in the room and you can tell they're trying to be remarkable. There's nothing more annoying in the world. (laughs) Um, I mean, I think it would probably be honest to say that everyone is remarkable. Well, I think that's what they're kind of saying in the movie. It's like, if you look at your own life and you're living it authentically, there's a remarkableness to it, right? Yeah. Yeah. You don't have to try to be original. You Mm -hmm. just have to try to be yourself, Mm -hmm. right? That's like, Emerson is this great line of like, I want to have an original relationship to the universe. It doesn't have to be unique. It just has to be mine. (laughs) It could be exactly exactly like somebody else's or something, but it, it needs to be authentically mine. 
I'm kind of torn about this because I think being true to oneself in service of something bigger than oneself is, that feels like an aspiration. We're caught in a moment where there's so much about, you know, I agree with so much of it, but the self-care movement and what I think, whether I'm offended, whether I'm comfortable, whether I'm happy seems to be a kind of, it's a very localized set of priorities compared to somebody like Jack Reed and Louise Bryant and anybody who's looking at the world and thinking bigger ideas. And so to be true to oneself in order to live a meaningful life, one could say, that maybe has an effect on other people, that feels like what we can learn from cinema as well, because we're exposed to things other than ourselves. And it that feels like a healthy thing. Particularly this film. I mean, I, I think yeah. that I think that's what you're saying is that they are, you know, she's developing as as a person and he's developing as a person, but they're doing it in service of art, journalism, truth, revolution, ideas. They are trying to make the world a better place for others in their development. Yes. And yes. I think that's what makes them admirable. Even if you disagree with the way they go about it, you admire the heart behind it all. Yes. And Cooper... Right. You are remarkable, darling. <laughs> thank you. I think you you're remarkable. Yeah, oh, yeah. You are. You've you. been remarkable in my life. <laughs> it's, All right, yeah. let's move on. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. Okay, well, let's. I think we should listen to a final clip from the film because there's a beautiful scene with Jack Nicholson as Eugene O'Neill and Dan Keaton as, as Louise. And I don't know how to set it up, so I won't. So let's mm. just listen to it and then talk about it afterwards. Okay. What is it? It's a poem telling you that I love you and that I won't be possessive and I won't be jealous. You can sleep with whoever you want, live with whoever you want. I'll do anything that you say. I'd like to kill you, but I can't. So you can do whatever you want to. Except not see me. <laughs> or smoke during the monologue. Gene, uh, Jack and I, we haven't told anyone yet because uh, we were too embarrassed. But we're married. Jack and I got married. Uh, that is embarrassing. Yes, isn't it? We felt very silly, but, but we wanted to do it, and it's going to be good. We're going to work together and we're, we're going to spend all our time together. And that's, that's why we took the lease on this place, so we wouldn't have to go back to the city. Does this mean that we have to cheat, or is this a free and independent marriage? Gene. You're a lying Irish whore from Portland, and you used me to get Jack Reed to marry you. No, I didn't. I, I just want us to be friends, Gene. Oh, how genteel. That would be a good role for you, wouldn't it? There's Louise with Jack and Gene. He's crazy about her, but Jack doesn't know. Poor Jack, poor Jean. What a heartbreaker she is. What a heartbreaker you are, Louise. Oh, my so, God. That's amazing. Ethan, tell us what you see in that scene. I mean, you know, he's world famous for his confidence and his bravado. And when he says you can do whatever you want, just not, you can't not see me. And we know that's the one thing that he's going to get. And he's so vulnerable in that moment and so true. And then his response to the rejection is, 
you know, worthy. I mean, first of all, it's hats off to the script, right? I mean, that's right. just a brilliant script and her performance, even that, that little exchange, it is embarrassing. I mean, <laughs> uh, it, it's, it's a phenomenal scene and it, I just feel utterly humbled by it. Uh, I think that Jack Nicholson, he had a little run that I would say is not that little, but from Easy Rider to Reds, oh, it's like 11, 12 years, is the greatest in the history of cinematic acting. I think that's a, a decade. You could write books about what he accomplished He's working with some of the best minds in cinema. He's exploring an aspect of masculinity through his work. Cuckoo's Nest, The Passenger, Chinatown, The Last Detail. Um, the list is is huge. You know, King of Marvin Gardens, Five Easy Pieces. It's incredible. And he's just on fire artistically. Yeah. And does he look like Eugene? None of that matters. He radiates a self-loathing, brilliant alcoholic mm. who kind of wants to die and kind of wants to, I mean, I'd like to kill you, but I can't. I mean, <laughs> I mean, it's just like, it's a high watermark. And I, I feel like this, it's also seeing him in a supporting role like this. It, it, it's like more what the English actors do, you know, where there's a place to be the lead and a place to be a supporting actor and a place mm. to you know, to be a part of an ensemble and he's still giving it his all. There's no part. I mean, every scene he's in in this movie is electric. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't know. I'm so glad you picked that clip because it's just, it's, that's cinema, man. <laughs> Love and it. that she doesn't read the poem and just shoves it in her pocket is like so heartbreaking. You know, it's just like, just read it, read it. You might change your mind. It's from Eugene O'Neill. <laughs> <laughs> Frame it, sell it later. <laughs> I mean, you just feel his, you feel the hugeness of his vulnerability and that you are complicit in the rejection totally. of him. And it just is, it's profound. And I mean, the thing I was also left with was this thought about um, public and private morals in a way that, that she and Jack have been espousing you know, f independent, free love, and they have a very sophisticated relationship in which they can, she's married, but she can be with Jack Reed, they can live together, blah, 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 all this stuff and espousing this. And then they get married, which was a kind of ultimate bourgeois yeah, betrayal in a sense. And they don't tell anybody because they're embarrassed, but it's like, I don't know if you get to do that and espouse. And, and so I, there was lots going on in that for me as well, but it was wonderful just to hear your take on it, Ethan. I love that public and private morals. That's a really, and, and the movie does a great job of letting people be more than one thing. They do yes. believe in free love, but it's not working for them because they're so madly in love with each other. It's hurting. It's not working. And, right. And, you know, when he asked her to marry him, and she smiles, your heart, you just like the <laughs> giddy 15-year-old, and you go, marry him. Um, I think we've got to go to our quickfire round. Yes, we do a little lightning round at the end of our, our, oh, okay. our show. So my first question for you is, what would have been your second choice of a film coming into this? Did you have one? 
Yeah, you know, the title of your show, the film that blew my mind, there's a handful that blew my mind. Um, Do the Right Thing was like a bat to my head. I think it's a masterpiece. Hmm. I, I don't think people can talk about that movie enough. It hasn't aged mm-hmm. a day. In fact, it's grown more powerful by the day, right? Yeah, it it, it has. Uh, when you guys reached out to me, I started thinking about Paul Schrader as a line. He says, great movies start when the end credits roll. And I love that line because when I think about Platoon, I think about the walk I had after I left the movie theater. You know, when I think about Bridge in the River Kwai, I I think about the walk I had after the movie theater. When I think Mm. about, um, what's that Jane Campion film I love so much about Janet Frame? Oh, Angel at My Table. Angel at My Table. Yeah. You know, there's certain movies, they just get inside you and they shake you up. And those are a handful of mine. Gorgeous. Okay, I have a question, uh, which I will never not ask, but it is going to lower the tone, hopefully. Uh, (laughs) What's the weirdest thing that's ever happened to you in a movie theater? The weirdest thing? Yeah. Is having sex weird? (laughs) Depends how you do it. (laughs) Popcorn involved? (laughs) Um, I had sex watching Gone with the Wind once. That was pretty great. <laughs> wow. In a movie theater, they did like so. It was well, amazing. Well, you have plenty of time. You have plenty of time. Uh, yeah, yeah, plenty of time. Plenty of time. <laughs> I don't uh, no. know nothing about birth and no baby, Miss <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> Um No, let's see. The weirdest thing. I don't know. I was at the opening weekend of Goodfellas and a giant fight broke out. That was pretty <laughs> exciting. And Where was that? Which cinema? Somewhere in New York. I don't remember exactly where, Midtown. <laughs> it wasn't okay, the Paris. It wasn't the Paris. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. I think Sex, Joy, and Gone with the Wind counts for me yeah, as, yeah, as okay. weird enough. The choice okay. of that film was great. Cooper, what else you got? Do you have any advice for, we're just shortening now to young filmmakers right now. What advice would you give them? You know, in general, I feel like one has to be very, very suspicious of giving advice uh, (laughs) unless you really know the person and really care about them and they're asking for it. My advice is largely what, you know, you mentioned that TED Talk I did is that, Mm. you know, this is my thesis statement. I think we can find out best who we are by what we love And the closer you get to things you love, the more what you love expands. That's where your authenticity lies. A la what you were talking about being remarkable, John, is that your own uniqueness and your own originality is remarkable. Everyone's is. And you have to take good care of yourself to find it. One thing that is, here's my advice. Most artists, their biggest obstacle is themselves. And we can blame society and we can blame this and blame that. But when I look at my life and I see my friends whose dreams are thwarted, it's most often addiction, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. Um, Mm. self-medication, taking care of yourself uh, and giving yourself a long runway of your life to do your work is, uh, is, that's good advice. That is good advice. That is, that is beautiful. It just made me think of, to go back to this film briefly, the line that I loved was when Beatty is, he's with Zinoviev 
and Zinoviev is one of those little little cherries on the cake that you were talking about earlier, Ethan, where there's a repetition, there's an echo, and we mm. understand it as an audience. Zinoviev has rewritten his Don't rewrite his what I write. Don't yeah. rewrite what I write. And he says this wonderful thing to Zinoviev that I had to I had to note down, which was he says to him, when you separate a man from what he loves the most, you, you purge. purge what's unique in him. Whoa. And when you purge right. what's unique in him, you purge dissent. And when you purge dissent, you kill the revolution. Revolution, revolution is, is dissent. dissent. Don't, don't rewrite. rewrite what I write. <laughs> Can I tell you something funny? Yeah. In the early 90s, you know when you used to have answering machines? Yeah. You know, with an outgoing like, hey, it's Ethan, I'm not home right now. <laughs> like, I, I, I just recorded that quote. <laughs> that was my outgoing message. When you purge what's unique in a man, you purge dissent. When you purge dissent, you purge the revolution. Revolution is dissent. Don't rewrite what I write. Beep. <laughs> Hello, Ethan. This is the doctor calling. <laughs> Why are you funny? yelling at me? Yeah. And my friends would all go, uh, uh, Ethan? Uh, um, <laughs> oh, they just go, oh, Ethan. <laughs> Oh, that was the perfect oh, yes. end yes. to a wonderful, wonderful hour of listening to yes. you talk about this film. What an absolute gift. We have been talking about Reds, directed, written, starring Warren Beatty and the incredible Diane Keaton. It won the Oscar for Best Direction in 1982, I guess. Maureen Stapleton won. They were all nominated. I think there were 12 nominations for this yeah, film. yeah. yeah. Absolutely, absolutely isn't it amazing. funny? It lost to Chariots of Fire, which actually, let's admit it, that movie, like, nobody talks about Chariots of Fire. And it's so forgettable. Uh, it, it, like, all you remember is the song, but Reds is like, I, Chariots of Fire, give me a break. <laughs> Thanks, Ethan. If you'd like to share the film that blew your mind, send us an email to stories at thefilmthatblewmymind.com. The Film That Blew My Mind is hosted by me, John Cooper. And me, Tabitha Jackson. Our executive producer is Jessica Buzzard. The show is produced by Goat Rodeo, and to find more of their work, go to goatrodeodc.com. Executive producers at Goat Rodeo are Megan Nadalski and Ian Enright. Creative producers are Max Johnston, Isabel Kirby McGowan, Rebecca Seidel, and Jay Venables. Mixing and engineering by Rebecca Seidel. Intro music from Wayne Jones. Marketing and publicity by Stephen Raphael at Required Viewing. Graphics by Lee Fenvis. Special thanks to Trevor Groth, Kirsten Chalker, John Nine, and especially Christine Buzzard. Also to all our friends and family who put up with us and our crazy projects. Aww. If you like this episode, why don't you subscribe to stay up to date on new ones and maybe leave us a rating and a review. Oh, and if you have any left, tell your friends. <laughs> <laughs>